Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Alrighty, let's get back to Dracula, part 34 of Dracula. Wow. So, a sip of reading cider. I'm still working on a cider. Mm. Oh, it's so good. I put a little too much Splenda in that one. I had to do a lot of reading about fermenting and bottling, obviously. And basically, if you don't want it to taste like hooch, uh, like raw hooch, then you have to sweeten it when you bottle it. But if you sweeten it with sugar, then the yeast in it might come back to life and keep fermenting, in which case you get what are referred to as bottle bombs, which sounds awful and is apparently a tremendous pain to clean up. So, anyway. Ugh. So let's go back to Dracula, chapter 13. Mina Harker's journal, 22 September. In the train to Exeter, Jonathan sleeping. It seems only yesterday that the last entry was made, and yet how much between then, in Whitby and in all the world before me, Jonathan away and no news of him, and now married to Jonathan, Jonathan a solicitor, a partner, rich, master of his business, Mr. Hawkins dead and buried, and Jonathan with another attack that may harm him. Some day he may ask me about it. Down it all goes. I'm rusty in my shorthand. See what unexpected prosperity does for us. So it may be as well to freshen it up again with an exercise anyhow. The service was very simple and very solemn. There were only ourselves and the servants there, one or two old friends of his from Exeter, his London agent, and a gentleman representing Sir John Paxton, the president of the Incorporated Law Society. Jonathan and I stood hand in hand, and we felt that our best and dearest friend was gone from us. We came back to town quietly, taking a bus to Hyde Park Corner. Jonathan thought it would interest me to go into the row for a while, so we sat down. But there were very few people there, and it was sad-looking and desolate to see so many empty chairs. It made us think of the empty chair at home, so we got up and walked down Piccadilly. Jonathan was holding me by the arm the way he used to in old days before I went to school. I felt it very improper, for you can't go on for some years teaching etiquette and decorum to other girls without the pedantry of it biting into yourself a bit. But it was Jonathan, and he was my husband, and we didn't know anybody who saw us, and we didn't care if they did. So on we walked. I was looking at a very beautiful girl in a big cartwheel hat, sitting in a Victoria outside Giuliano's, when I felt Jonathan clutch my arm so tight that he hurt me, and he said under his breath, My God! I'm always anxious about Jonathan, for I fear that some nervous fit may upset him again, so I turned to him quickly and asked him what it was that had disturbed him. 
He was very pale, and his eyes seemed bulging out as if half in terror and half in amazement. He gazed at a tall, thin man with a beaky nose and black mustache and pointed beard, who was also observing the pretty girl. He was looking at her so hard that he did not see either of us, and so I had good view of him. His face was not a good face. It was hard and cruel and sensual, and his big white teeth that looked all the whiter because his lips were so red were pointed like an animal's. Jonathan kept staring at him till I was afraid he would notice. I feared he might take it ill. He looked so fiercely, so fierce and nasty. I asked Jonathan, <clears throat> I feared he might take it ill. He looked so fierce and nasty. I asked Jonathan why he was disturbed, and he answered, evidently thinking that I knew as much about it as he did. Do you see who it is? No, dear, I said. I don't know who it is. I don't know him. Who is it? His answer seemed to shock and thrill me, for it was said as if he did not know that it was to me, Mina, to whom he was speaking. It is the man himself. The poor dear was evidently terrified at something, very greatly terrified. I do believe that if he had not had me to lean on and to support him, he would have sunk down. He kept staring. A man came out from the shop with a small parcel and gave it to the lady who then drove off. The dark man kept his eyes fixed on her and when the carriage moved up Piccadilly he followed in the same direction and hailed a handsome Jonathan kept looking at and hailed a handsome. Good grief. Jonathan kept looking after him and said as if to himself, I believe it is the Count, but he has grown young. My God, if this be so, oh my God, my God, if I only knew, if I only knew. He was distressing himself so much that I feared to keep his mind on the subject by asking him many questions, so I remained silent. I drew him away, I drew him away quietly, and he, holding my arm, came easily. We walked a little further and then went in and sat for a while in the green park. It was a hot day for autumn, and there was a comfortable seat in a shady place. After a few minutes staring at nothing, Jonathan's eyes closed, and he went quietly into a sleep, with his head on my shoulder. I thought it was the best thing for him, so did not disturb him. In about twenty minutes, he woke up and said to me quite cheerfully, Why, Mina, have I been asleep? Oh, do forgive me for being so rude. Come, and we'll have a cup of tea somewhere. He had evidently forgotten all about the dark stranger as in his illness he had forgotten all that this episode had reminded him of. I don't like this lapsing into forgetfulness. It may make or continue some injury to the brain. I must not ask him, for fear I shall do more harm than good, but I must somehow learn the facts of his journey abroad. The time has come, I fear, when I must open that parcel and know what is written. Oh, Jonathan, you will, I know, forgive me if I do wrong, but it is for your own dear sake. Later. A sad homecoming in every way, the house empty of the dear soul who was so good to us, Jonathan still pale and dizzy under a slight relapse of his malady, and now a telegram from Van Helsing, whoever he may be. You will be grieved to hear that Mrs. Westenra died five days ago, and that Lucy died the day before yesterday. They were both buried today. Oh, what a wealth of sorrow in a few words. Poor Mrs. Westenra, poor Lucy. Gone, gone, never to return to us. And poor dear Arthur, to have lost such sweetness out of his life. God help us all to bear our troubles.
Dr. Seward's Diary, 22 September. It is all over. Arthur has gone back to ring and has taken Quincy Morris with him. What a fine fellow is Quincy. I believe in my heart of hearts that he suffered as much about Lucy's death as any of us, but he bore himself through it like a moral Viking. If America can go on breeding men like that, she will be a power in the world indeed. Van Helsing is lying down, having a rest preparatory to his final journey. He goes over to Amsterdam tonight, but says he returns tomorrow night, that he only wants to make some arrangements which can only be made personally. He is to stop with me then if he can. He says he has work to do in London, which may take him some time. Poor old fellow. I fear that the strain of the past week has broken down even his iron strength. All the time of the burial he was, I could see, putting some terrible restraint on himself. When it was all over, we were standing beside Arthur, who, poor fellow, was speaking of his part in the operation where his blood had been transfused to his Lucy's veins. I could see Van Helsing's face grow white and purple by turns. Arthur was saying that he felt since then as if they two had been really married, and that she was his wife in the sight of God. None of us said a word of the other operations, and none of us ever shall. Arthur and Quincy went away together to the station, and Van Helsing and I came on here. The moment we were alone in the carriage, he gave way to a regular fit of hysterics. He has denied to me since that it was hysterics, and insisted that it was only his sense of humor asserting itself under very terrible conditions. He laughed till he cried, and I had to draw down the blind lest anyone should see us and misjudge. And then he cried till he laughed again and laughed and cried together, just as a woman does. I tried to be stern with him, as one is to a woman under the circumstances, but it had no effect. Men and women are so different in manifestations of nervous strength or weakness. Then when his face grew grave and stern again, I asked him why his mirth, and why at such a time. His reply was in a way characteristic of him, for it was logical and forceful and mysterious. He said, "'Ah, you don't comprehend, friend John.' Do not think that I am not sad, though I laugh. See, I have cried even when the laugh did choke me. But no more think that I am all sorry when I cry, for the laugh he come just the same. Keep it always with you that laughter who knock at your door and say, May I come in, is not the true laughter. No, he is a king, and he come when and how he like. He ask no person, he choose no time of suitability. He say, I am here. And behold, in example, I grieve my heart out for that so sweet young girl. I give my blood for her, though I am old and worn. I give my time, my skill, my sleep. I let my other sufferers want that so she may have all. And yet I can laugh at her very grave, laugh when the clay from the spade of the sexton drop upon her coffin and say thud, thud to my heart, till it send back the blood from my cheek." My heart bleed for that poor boy, that dear boy, so of the age of mine own boy had I been so blessed that he live, and with his hair and eyes the same. There, you know now why I love him so. And yet when he say things that touch my husband heart to the quick and make my father heart yearn to him as to no other man, not even to you, friend John, for we are more level in experiences than father and son. Yet even at such moment, King Laugh, he come to me and shout and bellow in my ear, Here I am, here I am, till the blood come dance back and bring some of the sunshine that he carry with him to my cheek. Oh, friend John, it is such moment, King Laugh, he come to see me. 
Oh, friend John, it is such a strange world, a sad world, a world full of miseries and woes and troubles. And yet when King Laugh come, he make them all dance to the tune he play. Bleeding hearts and dry bones of the churchyard and tears that burn as they fall all dance together to the music that he make with that smileless mouth of him. And believe me, friend John, that he is good to come and kind. Ah, we men and women are like ropes drawn tight with strain that pull us different ways. Then tears come, and like the rain on the ropes, they brace us up, until perhaps the strain become too great, and we break. But King Laugh, he come like the sunshine, and he ease off the strain again, and we bear to go on with our labor, what it may be. I did not like to wound him by pretending not to see his idea. As I did not yet understand the cause of his laughter, I asked him. As he answered me, his face grew stern, and he said in quite a different tone, Oh, it was the grim irony of it all. This so lovely lady garlanded with flowers, that looked so fair as life, till one by one we wondered if she were truly dead. She laid in that so fine marble house in that lonely churchyard where rest so many of her kin, laid there with the mother who loved her and whom she loved, and that sacred bell going toll, 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 so sad and slow, and those holy men with the white garments of the angel, pretending to read books, and yet all the time their eyes never on the page, and all of us with the bowed head, and all for what? She is dead, so, is it not? Well, for the life of me, Professor, I said, I can't see anything to laugh at and all that. Why, your explanation makes it a harder puzzle than before. But even if the burial service was comic, what about poor Art and his trouble? His heart is simply breaking. Just so. Said he not that the transfusion of his blood to her veins had made her truly his bride? Yes, and it is a sweet and comforting idea for him. Quite so. But there was a difficulty, friend John. If so, that... Then what about the others? Ho ho! Then this so sweet maid is polyandrist, and me, with my poor wife dead to me, but alive by church's law, though no wits, all gone, even I, who am faithful husband to this now no wife, am bigamist. I don't see where the joke comes in there either, I said, and I did not feel particularly pleased with him for saying such things. He laid his hand on my arm and said, Friend John, forgive me if I pain. I showed not my feelings to others when it would wound, but only to you, my old friend, whom I can trust. If you could have looked into my very heart, then when I want you to laugh. If you could have done so when the laugh arrived. If you could do so now, when King Laugh have pack up his crown and all that is to him, far he go far. For he go far, far away from me, and for a long, long time. Maybe you would perhaps pity me the most of all. I was touched by the tenderness of his tone and asked why. Because I know. And now we are all scattered, and for many a long day loneliness will sit over our roofs with brooding wings. Lucy lies in the tomb of her kin, a lordly death house in a lonely churchyard, away from teeming London, where the air is fresh and the sun rises over Hampstead Hill, and where wild flowers grow of their own accord. So I can finish this diary. And God only knows if I shall ever begin another. If I do, or if I even open this again, it will be to deal with different people and different themes. For here at the end, where the romance of my life is told, 
Ere I go back to take up the thread of my life work, I say sadly and without hope, Phineas. Okay, well, let's wrap it up there. This is a long chapter, jeez. Um, I stumbled all over myself reading that, and I'm going to have to go back and do some editing, so fingers crossed I catch all that, but if I don't, sorry. And talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.